All right. Both parties, Republicans and Democrats, have a strategic ambiguity when it comes to our southern border. We need immigrants to come into this country and work for our corporations. Many of those corporations want the immigrants to be here without any documents because they're easier to scare. An immigrant without documents doesn't ask for time and a half for overtime. They work when they're sick and they keep their mouths shut. They do what they're told out of fear that the boss will turn them into immigration. In fact, the business model for most slaughterhouses, cleaning services, and construction companies is hiring undocumented immigrants because they don't make trouble. Cheap labor. But this country also needs someone to demonize for jobs being taken away or a social safety net that's broke. It's not the rich corporations shipping jobs overseas or preferring undocumented employees because they work cheaper. No, no, it's not the rich corporations refusing to pay their fair share of taxes, which leaves our schools and public health care underfunded. No, it's all those undocumented people from south of the border flooding into our country and using up all the social services and taking our jobs. Like I said, the rich and the powerful, they don't want to solve the immigration problem because for the rich and the powerful, there is no immigration problem. It's working exactly the way they want it to. They get cheap labor and somebody to demonize, somebody to blame for the lousy public schools or whatever. We're now coming up on the 11th year anniversary of DACA, when President Obama tried to address the inhumanity, the cruelty of keeping children who were brought to this country by their parents without any documentation, and then they're forced to live in the shadows as adults. Americans, they're Americans. It's the only country they know, but they're Americans without citizenship. They're not born here, but America is the only country they have ever known. They live in fear that at any time the monsters from ICE, and they are monsters, the monsters from ICE, can grab them and ship them back to a country they haven't lived in since they were two President Obama tried to get Republicans to pass the Dreamers Act, which would have solved this problem. Since 2001, representatives from both sides of the aisle have been trying to pass the Dream Act, which would give to minors not born in America, minors who arrived before the age of 16, an opportunity to apply for permanent residency if they met certain requirements, like graduating from high school. And if they're male, they register with the Selective Service. But the DREAM Act could never pass. So on June 15th, 2012, Obama signed DACA, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, it was an executive order that 
instituted much of the DREAM Act that couldn't get passed in Congress. It was an executive order, but more than 800,000 young Americans registered as dreamers. But, like I said, it's an executive order, so DACA to this day continues to be challenged in our courts. Trump rescinded DACA, meaning there would be no new applications. And it also left the 800,000 dreamers who signed up under Obama somewhat secure, but also in a psychological state of limbo, not quite sure where they stand. Joe Biden reinstated DACA, and once again, DACA was challenged in the courts. So millions of Americans brought here as minors are left without a country, a sense of belonging nowhere. America is their home, but they can't get permanent residency status. They can't become citizens. Studies show DACA recipients are less likely to commit crimes than regular citizens. They're more likely to work and pay into Social Security. And most importantly, they themselves, and this is the most important fact, they themselves live healthier lives, no longer plagued by the mental health issues that arise from living in the shadows, living with the fear that the monsters from ICE are going to round them up and send them back to a country they wouldn't recognize. Now, do you understand America's immigration policy? Because I don't. The reason I don't and you don't understand America's immigration policy is because we're not supposed to. They've done, they've played a trick on us. They tie it up in the courts because Congress refuses to address the immigration problem, which is not a problem for the rich and powerful. It's working exactly the way they want it to. So they leave it to the courts, because if it's in the courts, it's too Byzantine for anybody to understand. The destiny of these dreamers, their destiny bounces from circuit court to circuit court. And while Biden's rhetoric is softer on immigration than Trump's, he's still deporting families. So there's no official policy, but no official policy doesn't mean there isn't a policy. The policy is no official policy. The policy is confusion. The policy is eh, let it let the courts confuse everybody. There is a policy when it comes to undocumented Americans. The policy is exploit them, exploit them at work and exploit them politically. There very much is a policy here in America when it comes to immigration. It is use undocumented Americans as a source of cheap labor and an even cheaper excuse for everything that's wrong with America. Everything that's wrong with America that could be solved if the rich and powerful would just pay their fair share of taxes, pay workers a livable wage. It's a very coherent immigration policy, just not for us. Just like the war in Iraq, which we all think is a failure, 
our immigration policy is turning out just fine for the people who stand to gain financially from it. Meanwhile, dreamers live in a state of terror because America is controlled by sadists and racists who will say and do anything to anyone to accumulate more wealth and for the pleasure of watching people suffer. Professor Cornell West announced he was running for president on the People's Party ticket last week. This week, he announced he would also be running as a Green Party candidate. Now, the People's Party was founded after the 2020 election by a disgruntled Bernie staffer. And so far, it only has ballot access in Florida, but not not the presidential ticket. The ballot, no access, even in Florida, doesn't have access to the presidential ticket. Journalist Christopher Hedges reportedly arranged a meeting on June 10th between Cornell West and members of the California Green Party, where a deal was struck for West to also run as a Green Party candidate. Anne Garrison, writing over at the Black Agenda Report, says that the Green Party has significant access to presidential ballots around the country. Meanwhile, some Democrats are accusing Cornell West of trying to siphon off Biden voters and make it easier for Trump to win in the general election. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Or Biden could use his pen and sign a series of executive orders that animate the left so they don't seek solace in the candidacy of Cornell West. Biden could sign some executive orders right now, like forgiving all student loans. And yes, it will be challenged in the courts because everything gets challenged in the courts. But if Biden uses his pen between now and Election Day, maybe he can win so big in November, he'll be able to spend the next four years redrawing the courts. So challenges to progressive executive orders do hold up in court. We have divided government and no major legislation is going to get passed between now and January of 2025. So use your pen, Joe. It shouldn't be that hard to sign a couple of executive orders that make Cornell West irrelevant. A federal grand jury on Thursday indicted the 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman who leaked classified material on a Discord channel for gamers. Jack Teixeira could face as much as 60 years in prison. Some of the documents he leaked have ended up being used by the news media. Based on his leaks, the Washington Post was able to report last week that the Biden administration knew three months in advance that Ukraine was planning to blow up the Nord Stream gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea, even though after the explosions, the Biden administration insisted that Putin was probably behind it. Pulitzer Prize investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch reported earlier this year 
that the pipelines were, in fact, blown up by the Biden administration. So who's done more damage? This 21-year-old kid leaking those documents or the Biden administration leaking the Nord Stream gas pipeline? The Nord Stream explosions were the second largest release of methane in world history right after Chris Christie getting up from his couch last Thanksgiving for seconds. We never would have known the truth about the Nord Stream pipeline explosion had it not been for this 21-year-old kid leaking the intelligence documents. Most of what's classified... Most of these documents that are classified are protecting people from the crimes, from our finding out about the crimes they committed. The Associated Press is reporting that the Justice Department has begun looking into whether or not the PGA's proposed merger with Saudi Arabia's LIV Golf violates antitrust law. Oh, good. They have to look into this. Let's see. Uh, LIV Golf was suing the PGA, claiming it was a monopoly, and the PGA was suing LIV Golf, claiming it was a monopoly. And then they dropped their antitrust lawsuits and decided, you know what? Let's merge. So how could they now be a monopoly? Everyone knows when two incredibly large corporations accusing the other of being a monopoly merge and form one new company, there's no way that the new company could also be a monopoly. Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, is a socialist, and uh, that means nobody here in America gets to hear what he has to say. Nobody knows about him here in America. He's the Secretary General of the United Nations, Yesterday, Antonio Guterres called the oil companies planet wreckers, planet wreckers who are lying to the world by claiming they can expand the use of fossil fuels through unproven technology known as carbon capture. Listeners to my podcast know that Professor Marianne Cummings, physicist, has been telling us for years that carbon capture is a fallacy. It's impossible. Well, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres yesterday said carbon capture is bullshit. He said, and I quote, let's face facts. The problem is not simply fossil fuel emissions. It's fossil fuels, period. The former head of Portugal's Socialist Party then went on to say, quote, we are hurtling towards disaster, eyes wide open, with far too many willing to bet it all on wishful thinking, unproven technologies and silver silver bullet solutions. The secretary general of the United Nations then warned that for every dollar that oil companies spend on fossil fuels, They only spend four cents developing carbon capture technology. He concluded, quote, trading the future for 30 pieces of silver is immoral. 
That's the Secretary General of the United Nations who works right here in New York City. But here in America, nobody listens to him. Instead, we listen to commercials from Shell. They, you know, they sponsor all our mainstream news gathering operations. And Shell keeps telling us how much they're working on alternative energy. And yet, like the U.N. Secretary General says, they're planet wreckers and planet wreckers lie. They lie. They are destroying the they're killing us. Shell is killing us. Quartz, the magazine Quartz, reports that Shell had record profits in 2022. They made $43 billion in 2022. That's twice what it made the year before. Why? Well, because of the price of gas went up. There's your quick lesson in inflation. Why do prices go up? Greed, right? $43 billion in 2022. The cost of gasoline was unaffordable. It doubled, as did Shell's profits. We're finding that most of the inflation in America is caused not by supply chain issues, but just by greed, by convincing Americans that inflation is an issue. And then they secretly, you know, they raise their prices and they hope that nobody notices their bottom line. They don't have to raise prices. They raise prices because they can. But that's not what I'm talking about now. I'm talking about how they destroy the planet, not our finance, our financial situation. Quartz reports that Shell spent seven times as much on stock buybacks and increasing dividends for shareholders last year than it did on developing renewable energy. That was 2022. And this year, they're going to, it's even worse what they're going to be spending on fossil fuels because there's new leadership at Shell this year. And this new leader feels the stock is undervalued. Right. And so he's announced a policy shift. It's a new policy shift over at Shell. Reuters reports that to pump up profits and the stock valuation, Shell unveiled before a meeting of investors this week a new policy. They're abandoning the old policy of searching for renewable sources of energy And they're going all in on drilling. The new head of Shell says the future for his company is no longer renewables. It's liquid natural gas. Reuters reports that Shell has completely scrapped its investments in offshore wind, hydrogen, and biofuels. Now, the previous CEO of Shell, Bernard Looney, that's his name, got a lot of praise last year and the year before, when he vowed to cut oil production by 40% by the end of the decade. And he vowed to turn Shell into a carbon-neutral corporation. But all those plans have been scrapped. But don't listen to the Secretary General of the United Nations. Listen to all those Shell commercials sponsoring your favorite news channels. Watch all those ads that Shell will be 
putting on MSNBC and CNN and Fox News, trying to convince us that Shell is leading the fight against climate change. They've completely abandoned their carbon neutral policy. Meanwhile, those Canadian wildfires continue unabated. The Guardian reports that America's Midwest can expect a fresh blanket of Canadian smoke as the winds drift southward. Smoky skies and air quality alerts have been reported in Wisconsin and Minnesota. The National Weather Service says New York City can expect air quality alerts throughout the weekend as new smoke arrives. It's very depressing. I went for a walk today and not good, not good. Scientists in Europe report that the temperature of our planet momentarily spiked by 1.5 degrees Celsius this month, reaching the hottest this planet has ever been since the Industrial Revolution. They warn that coupled with the El Nino effect in the Pacific Ocean, 2023 will probably end up becoming the hottest year on record. The world has been warned that should the planet's temperature rise beyond 1.5 Celsius permanently, as opposed to just spiking the way it did earlier this month, that would be the tipping point where heat waves, droughts, and flooding would become so severe and so frequent, billions of people would find the planet no longer habitable. It's happening quicker than they predicted. But hey, transgender influencers are endorsing Bud Light, so we have more important things to worry about than the planet. A group of young people in Montana took their state to court this week, saying that the state of Montana's dependency on fossil fuels is a direct violation of a 1972 addition to Montana's Constitution, which reads, quote, the state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations, unquote. The case is 12 years old. Several Montana attorney generals have tried to get it thrown out of court, but the case is finally being heard. Senator John Kennedy, no relation to John Kennedy or reality for that matter. Senator John Kennedy represents the deplorables of Louisiana. And on Wednesday, as the planet burns, he stood in the well of the Senate to challenge Joe Biden's energy department regulations on climate change. But don't worry, this isn't about our gas stoves. Now, the Department of Energy itself admits that 20% of families who own a dishwasher never use it. Why is that? Uh, because we no longer eat together as a family. We don't sit down and use dishes. We order takeout and rely on paper plates. It's because they don't want to taste last night's jambalaya in their morning Cheerios. Oh, okay. Thank you. Why don't we get the feeling uh, Senator John Kennedy's morning Cheerios taste like scotch and soda? No milk for me, honey. I'll just pour the scotch and soda in there 
as usual. A federal judge on Thursday set January 15th, 2024 as the start date for E. Jean Carroll's second defamation suit against Donald Trump. If you remember, E. Jean Carroll last month won the first suit after a jury ruled that Donald Trump sexually assaulted her and then defamed her reputation and the jury awarded her $5 million. Donald Trump is appealing that decision. But Carroll has a second case. That case was already in motion before Donald Trump's CNN town hall last month, where he called E. Jean Carroll a whack job. Her lawyers complained to the judge in the second trial, and the judge ruled this week that her lawyers were allowed to amend the second defamation case, and they're now asking for $10 million because of those statements. On Thursday, the same judge set the new trial date for E. Jean Carroll's second defamation case against Donald Trump, and that will be January 15th, 2024. You know, I got to hand it to Donald Trump. The guy just turned 77. He stays so busy. He's got he's got the Manhattan D.A. suing him, the trial with the Manhattan D.A. He's got the state attorney general suing him. He's got these indictments in Miami, and then there are going to be some new indictments coming from the special counsel on the insurrection. And he's got two cases with E. Jean Carroll, 77, right? God bless Donald Trump. This is, you got to stay active. This is the secret to longevity. Here is Senator Lindy, Lindsey Graham, who is terrified that Donald Trump is going to tell the world what we already know about Lindsey Graham. So when Lindsey Graham isn't drinking too much, he's making the rounds of television shows defending the indefensible. Here is confirmed bachelor Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who's never met the right women. Here he is giving a message to Donald Trump. We got your back. President Trump, we have your back. Mm, bad choice of words, Lindsay. I don't think you should be the one telling Donald Trump you got his back. Uh, not sure Trump wants to give his back over to such an openly confirmed bachelor like Lindsey Graham. OK, so why do you have the president's back, Lindsay? From my point of view, conservatism is in good hands with President Donald Trump. OK, conservatism is in good hands with Donald Trump. You mean the $7 trillion of debt he racked up as president? You know, the national debt is $33 trillion. $7 trillion of that is Donald Trump's. Is that the conservatism you're talking about? Or trashing the Justice Department and sending goons in to destroy the Capitol? That kind of conservatism is in good hands? Is it respect for family values? Like 30 credible rape allegations. See, I wasn't quite sure what conservative values Lindsey Graham was talking about until I saw college dropout Charlie Kirk. He runs Turning Points USA. He also has a radio show and he 
you know, he's a big supporter of Donald Trump and a big conservative. And I, you know, I didn't, what, what kind of conservative values does Donald Trump keep secure? Here is Charlie Kirk interviewing Helen Andrews, the senior editor of the American Conservative magazine. And this will give you an idea of what conservative values Donald Trump is preserving. Tell us about your piece and the argument that white defendants can't get a fair hearing in the modern justice system. Thanks, Riley. Uh, just this week, we've seen a grand jury indict Daniel Penny, the young Marine who held Jordan Neely. Mm -hmm. That's Helen Andrews, senior editor of the American Conservative. And there it is. That's Trump's conservative values. Racism, white nationalism. That's what conservative values have morphed into. Thanks to the Republican Party. Racism. Everything else is irrelevant. And hatred for the LGBTQ community. It's racism. The Wall Street, yeah, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Donald Trump Jr. has some emails he may not want us to see. Donald Trump has an old college buddy. I love this name. Gentry Beach. That's his friend. Gentry Beach. It sounds like every restricted oceanfront property in Rhode Island, doesn't it? Gentry Beach. No Jews or blacks, please. Anyway, Gentry Beach. If anybody's writing a screenplay and one of their characters is an asshole, use the name Gentry Beach. Gentry Beach is suing his old employer, some capital management firm. The trial has been going on for more than a decade. And the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday there are some emails that Don Jr. sent to Gentry Beach that have been entered into evidence. And Don Jr. doesn't want the judge to release these emails because Don Jr. makes disparaging comments about blacks, Jews, and Mexicans in those emails. As they say, like father, like Nazi. Tuesday afternoon, after his arraignment in the Miami courtroom, Donald Trump stopped off in Little Havana, for a meal at a Cuban restaurant named Versailles, a Cuban restaurant named Versailles. And he was videotaped shouting food for everyone. Well, it turns out food for everyone just meant food for me. New Times reports that nobody <laughs> had their meal paid for by the former president. Well, what do you expect? You're eating at a Cuban restaurant named Versailles. When I'm in Miami, I go to a French restaurant called Bay of Pigs. Now, that's good eating. Forbes reports that while Donald Trump kept boxes of classified documents in bathrooms, showers, or on ballroom stages in Mar-a-Lago, there were 380 foreign workers who all had the run of the place. And access to all those rooms where the classified documents were. While Donald Trump issued a travel ban for foreigners and tried to build a wall to keep Mexicans out, there was no ban, no wall keeping foreigners from working at Mar-a-Lago for as little as $11 an hour. 
and all the classified documents you can stuff into your trousers. Senator Tommy, Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, represents the state of Alabama because he's a racist. No, seriously, he's a racist. Last month, Senator Tommy Tuberville was asked if white nationalists should be allowed to serve in our military. And Tommy Tuberville said, Biden calls them white nationalists. I call them Americans. When he was speaking at a campaign rally in Nevada last year, Donald Trump was there. The very racist senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, told the crowd that Democrats, quote, are not soft on crime. He went on to say, no, Democrats are pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparations because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Like I said, a racist. Let me just, this is what he said at a campaign rally uh, last year. Donald Trump was in attendance. Democrats are pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over and take what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparations because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. He is saying that black people are criminals, racist, or Republican. Same thing. Here is the racist Tommy Tuberville, who is tough on crime, defending Trump's mishandling of classified material. And always remember that bigots are idiots. And yeah, there was secure. I mean, he said they had to go in there and, and they had to bring a locksmith uh, to open some of the locks. Uh, over the bathroom, though. Well, I don't know about that now. I don't know about that. <laughs> you effing idiot. Yeah, it was secure. It was, it was secure. What about the bathroom? I don't know about that. It's the only thing we know about the classified documents is that they were stored in the bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. Well, idiot. Former Attorney General Bill Barr was on Fox News again, and I got to say, he's pretty good attacking his old client, Donald Trump. Here he is uh, addressing the Trump defenders who say the president shouldn't be indicted over paperwork. They just dismiss it as a dispute over paperwork. Here is former Attorney General Republican attack dog for Donald Trump, who's now attacking Donald Trump. Here is Bill Barr explaining why it's not a dispute over paperwork. The position is being taken that this is really just a document dispute over custody of documents, and the president has good arguments as to why he should have kept them. I think the arguments are farcical and will be shown as such. Okay, so explain why the president is being prosecuted. The president is being uh, prosecuted here because it's an obstruction case, and he's in trouble for what he did after he got the subpoena. I see. Bill Barr, former attorney general under Donald Trump, you're saying that Donald Trump is being prosecuted for obstruction. 
But Robert Mueller in the Mueller report laid out an entire pathway to prosecute Donald Trump for obstruction of justice in Russiagate. Remember, you know, you were the attorney general and, you know, Mueller in the report talks about Trump firing James Comey, head of the FBI. But as attorney general, you didn't think obstruction was bad. You you didn't think that Trump should be indicted. Why is obstruction of justice an issue now? Well, he's not going to answer that. Come on, Bill. If he thought he had arguments that these were his documents, there are many things he could have done to raise those arguments. He could have moved to quash the subpoena. He could have given the documents to the government and then sued to bring him back and made his legal arguments as to why they're really his. Uh, but he didn't do that. So what did he do instead? He engaged in outrageous act of obstruction and deception uh, that obstructed that subpoena. And that is wrong. That's a law. I mean, that's a violation of law. That's a serious problem for him. What he did was, according to the uh, uh, indictment, he took uh, a lot of the boxes away hid them from his lawyer, told his lawyer to go and search what remained, and then caused that lawyer to file a statement of the court saying that uh, there had been a complete search. And if anyone did that, that would be obstruction. So that is why I think the Justice Department pulled the trigger, and that's the central part of this case. So talking about whether you had the right to have the documents or not, while it's, it's ridiculous, it's a, it's, it's a sideshow. He has no you cannot defend what he did with that subpoena. Okay, I I don't understand because you were attorney general and Robert Mueller in his report, the second part of the report. Laid out a pathway on prosecuting Donald Trump for obstruction of justice. You know, he wrote about Trump firing the FBI director, James Comey, because Comey wouldn't stop investigating Russiagate. Trump told Lester Holt on NBC News right after he fired James Comey that he was putting it. He fired James Comey to put an end to the investigation into Russiagate. That's in the Mueller report. It was an open and shut case of obstruction of justice. The Mueller report spelled it all out. But yet you as attorney general wouldn't prosecute. Mueller stopped talking to you. Because you wouldn't prosecute for obstruction of justice. You didn't even admit that the Mueller report laid out a pathway for obstruction of justice. Why all of a sudden are you so concerned about obstruction of justice? Why is this different? That was a reason that is a sound charge that that is right. He did not have the right to keep those documents and he jerked the government around for a year. Put yourself in the government's position. You don't know what he has. He can have, you know, and you don't know what's at risk. They needed to see that stuff. What are, what are they to do? What are they to do? What you did? Nothing. Don't do anything. All of a sudden, obstruction of justice is an issue. So why is this Justice Department prosecuting Trump? But when you were head of the Justice Department, you wouldn't. I think that was a legitimate charge, but I don't think they would have charged it had they given the documents back. It was it was the uh, obstruction of the subpoena that I think led the department to pull the trigger. All right. So you're mad at Trump.
Is it because he keeps calling you a pig now? Well, he said I he said I was a gutless lowlife and clearly I have a gut. So that, that that'll shed light on his veracity there. Chris Christie also has a gut and he's running for president. Now, I don't like Chris Christie, but he's going to make this first debate in August definitely worth watching. Here is a sample of Chris Christie. This is what the debates are going to look like. Here is Chris Christie eating Donald Trump's lunch on immigration. But remember what he promised in 2016. He was going to build a wall across the entire border in his first four years, and Mexico was going to pay for it. Well, we got a, a wall that's about a quarter of the way done, and Mexico hasn't given us one peso yet. So, you know, Donald Trump in 2016 was a guy who had no record, so he couldn't be examined in a very specific way. He now said he was going to do that with immigration. And by the way, had Congress for the first two years fully controlled by the Republicans, not one change in the immigration laws. So, of but, course, Joe Biden can come in and make things so on, did, on a debate stage. He's going to say Biden stopped it. And you can go down to the border today and see piles of steel that are just laying there in the, the in the Arizona desert. Yeah, Bill, those piles of steel have been sitting there since Donald Trump was president. He didn't get it done. He couldn't convince the, uh, the Republican Congress to fund the wall. He couldn't finish it. And he didn't change one immigration law. Okay, so I can't stand Chris Christie. And uh, this is all, you know, for show. But just in terms of the theater of the 2024 presidential election, Chris Christie is the guy to watch because he used to be a prosecutor. He was a federal prosecutor before he was governor of New Jersey. As a federal prosecutor, he locked up Jared Kushner's daddy. And the reason Chris Christie is so mad at Trump is because when Christie dropped out in 2016, he threw his weight behind Donald Trump, worked very hard to get him elected, and he wasn't welcomed into the Oval Office. He didn't really get any cabinet positions that he craved because Jared Kushner held a grudge against Chris Christie for putting his daddy in prison. That's why Chris Christie is going after Donald Trump, because he didn't get a taste of the Trump presidency. It's the same reason Jim Jordan, Freedom Caucus, is keeping his mouth shut about Kevin McCarthy, because Kevin McCarthy bought his silence by making him chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Trump didn't give anything to Chris Christie to satisfy his thirst for power. So watch Chris Christie. He's going to be really interesting uh, making the case against Donald Trump to Republican voters. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Have you bought Paid to Piss People Off? It's written by the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. It has the Feldman guarantee. Go buy Paid to Piss People Off, published by Blue Cedar Press. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And he is a lawyer and a member of the Supreme Court Bar. We're going to talk about the Reverend... Pat Robertson, who passed away last week. 
But first, the Southern Baptist Convention had their annual meeting in Louisiana this week. They amended their constitution. They voted, two-thirds majority voted, to forbid female pastors from serving in the Southern Baptist Convention. Is that what the religion is called, the Southern Baptist Convention or Southern Baptists? Well, they're Southern Baptists, but when they meet together or have collections of individual churches, it's frequently called a convention, and that's what the Southern Baptist Convention is. It's the largest gathering of Baptists in the country. It's not the only one, because over the years, uh, they purge not just women, which they've essentially purged yet again, but um, anybody who had any progressive views about any social issues. And the weird thing about this is that the Southern Baptist Convention had something, uh, a kind of outreach uh, piece of it that was very committed to church-state separation. How? in When Roe versus Wade came down from the Supreme Court, the guy who ran that office, a minister named Foy Valentine, was asked what he thought about the Roe decision. His response was keeping in the tradition of a lot of Baptists. He said, I think on balance it's a good decision because it makes this issue of abortion a moral question and not a legal one, and that's what it ought to be. So needless to say, he didn't last terribly long, and there were purges uh, that went on for at least a decade after that, where people who had what some would call traditional Baptist views about the separation of church and state, the need to separate morality from legality, uh, were all gone. There's an, uh, an American Baptist convention also, and a spotting of others as well. If you're a Baptist, you could be part of several different denominations. Southern Baptist is a very specific right. denomination. Correct. And they split during the, before the Civil War, they were founded because they believed in slavery. Uh, the roots of, of the Southern Baptists are in slaveholders, yeah. Jim Crow South, the old Confederacy, Interracial marriage, they're, they're against it. Segregation, they were for it. They apologized in 1995 for their history. However, they pivoted away from race towards sex and eventually found an opening with abortion, right? Where you've kind of explained this, where... Yeah, well, they, they were not... Uh, initially against abortion as a legal matter. They were only against it as a moral principle. And they were very, uh, they were very committed to the idea that you get a message from God about what is the moral direction of your life. And if you <clears throat> got a, the, the thoughts from God that 
you should not have an abortion or you should not perform abortions, that's fine. But they did until relatively recently oppose the idea that government or government agents or the courts would make the determination for every Baptist to say nothing of everybody else about whether to obtain an abortion. So that it's a relatively modern accretion to Southern Baptist theology, but now you'd be hard-pressed to find any Southern Baptist Convention pastors who are pro-choice when it comes to abortion, or even when it comes to contraception. Or same-sex marriage. Or same-sex marriage. What was Jerry Falwell? Uh, Jerry Falwell was for a while a Southern Baptist, as I recall, but then he became... He wasn't thrown out, but I think he decided he didn't need that tie in order to become a famous preacher and right-winger. You kind of intimated over the years that ministers, pastors, especially Southern Baptists, realized in the 60s and 70s that they could no longer push for segregation. They needed a new demon, and so they turned to sex. They turned to, they turned on loose yep. women, women who needed abortions, and the LGBTQ community. Why do they need a demon? Why do they have to demonize somebody? I think, frankly, it's a lot has to do with money. They needed to continue to get money. And the, one of the ways you got money, if you were giving up the issue of race, is to, is to turn to gender and to turn to the so-called immorality of abortion. And it did work very, very well. I mean, it, it they raised a huge amount of money about that. Falwell himself was approached, not first, but kind of fourth or fifth, as the Southern Baptist who might want to form this new group, the Moral Majority. And a lot of uh, pastors, very conservative pastors, uh, turned them down. They said, well, we don't want that. And in fact, Falwell himself, like many Southern Baptists, did not believe that you should be involved in the political scene at all. There are plenty of old sermons of Jerry Falwell's where he says, our goal is to save souls. It has nothing to do with politics. But as soon as somebody dangled this banana in front of him and said, hey, but we could make you really famous. We could form and give you a lot of money to form something called the moral majority. And unlike those other people it approached earlier, Jerry said, that sounds like a great idea. And so now he's, then he becomes convinced that you need to meld your Bible views with the cause of political candidates as well as political ideologies. He benefited from court-ordered desegregation because he could have these white Christian schools. You could take your kids out of public schools so they didn't have to go to school with black people. Yep. And so there was money in these private Christian schools that only taught whites. Yeah, I mean, Falwell really built his the beginnings of his connection with politics on precisely that issue. It was not on abortion. It was on keeping private religious schools private and segregated. 
And he he found that that was something that courts could consider, and a lot of courts did consider it, and they almost uniformly ruled, whether they were talking about state law or federal law, that these uh, whites-only academies could not be defended. It was not a matter of religious freedom. It was a matter of making sure that you couldn't find a school system that could divorce itself from the requirements of desegregation. But it was a huge deal. It was. It's hard for people to believe today not hard for me to believe, but that there are actually still people today who are, call themselves Christians, who are in the business of trying to defend one way or another segregated private schools. And as we look closer and closer at what the Supreme Court is doing these days, they are coming very close to saying, you know, you could get money from the state or federal government for a private school, even if that private school does not admit all students. And so far, in a sense, they've been lucky. The schools, they might say terrible things about Muslims. They might say, we're not going to admit any uh, students who follow Islam. But they haven't said, and by the way, we don't want to accept black students either. That's the line that hasn't yet been crossed. But the others, disparaging of religions, all the LGBTQ uh, cases, uh, they're being won by religious bigots. The Southern Baptists said we will not hire. They, they, they kicked two or three churches out because they had female pastors. How is it legal for any organization, even a church, to say if you're a woman, we will not hire you. You're automatically excluded from becoming yeah. a pastor. How is that legal? The courts over the last 30 years have developed an idea that the Civil Rights Acts do permit certain exceptions. And those exceptions are what is called a ministerial exception. This is not in the statute, but it's it's been defined as an exemption to the Civil Rights Act by courts, and it's metastasized. I mean, at least at the beginning, one thought that it was about, for example, um, you you wouldn't require a Jewish temple when it was seeking a new rabbi to invite people who support Baha'i or atheists to come and apply, that it didn't make any sense because there was a core principle. If a minister is the head of the flock, that minister ought to be able, said the courts, uh, to, um, to believe, to state, and to act upon their theological beliefs. Now, so comes a disabled woman uh, at a, a, a non-Catholic school, but a very conservative Protestant school. And she is thrown out of the church, of the, her position in, the, in a church school, even though she wasn't teaching religion, but she, um, she had some, I, I forget the details of this, but she had some kind of illness that made it difficult for her to, um, 
go to school, uh, teach every day. And she went to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and said, uh, you need to um, need to do something about this. They're discriminating against me on the basis of my physical uh, disability. And the EEOC at first thought, well, that makes sense. Um, then a court looked at it and said, no, it actually doesn't make any sense. The ministerial exception is for anybody who the church or the church school defines as a minister. And when this got to the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, of all people, at the end of the hour of debate, after it had been established that this woman had no actual religious duties at all, she didn't teach anything, she didn't lead prayer, he said, shouldn't we only allow an exemption for people who have, and he said, like, we could say a substantial religious, doc, a doctrinally religious uh, uh, position. And I thought, man, that, that's actually a good idea. That's, that's a perfect solution. But he later changed his mind, joined the majority, and basically said, um, if they say you're a minister, no matter what you do, you are a minister. And shortly thereafter, I remember the day it came out, I said to some reporters, why don't they just define the custodians as ministers of dirt? And then they could discriminate against them too. And shortly thereafter, we got a call from an African-American choir director. And uh, he wanted us to represent him in a case arguing that he was being excluded because of his race. And our legal team at the time said, you know, there's no nothing to that. You, you can't make it because you do, in fact, sing hymns, you lead choirs, you really have a lot of religious duties in your portfolio. And um, I think he later got another set of attorneys and, and they they lost the case. So, and so it, nobody... swallows, it swallows up. It's the idea that ministerial exemptions are swallowing up everything, any form of discrimination that can be justified when the people who run the church or run the church schools say, we view her as a minister and we get to write the rules. If this were the Warren court, yeah. could the Southern Baptists get away with saying we're not hiring female pastors i think they probably could because there's another doctrine of the autonomy of religious bodies and this is the right loves this and it's it's it is not a terribly well-developed doctrine but i don't think that even in the warren court if somebody said we the heads of the southern baptist convention believe that it is According to the Bible, only men can serve as the heads of churches. I don't think that uh, that theory, you know, ridiculous and obnoxious as it is to most people, I don't think that that that, that doctrine would have been pierced even by the Warren court and certainly not by this one. And if you're a religious leader who 
says it's okay to molest children, it's in the Bible, and you start molesting children, that's criminal. Yeah. And so you can be prosecuted, right? You can be, but occasionally there are even um, instances where someone who is an abusive priest tries to argue that the civil courts, the criminal and civil courts, have no jurisdiction over what is essentially a private religious matter. And when I spoke uh, once or twice to the survivors network of against abusive priests, snap. Uh, the stories were horrendous, but the, the argument that canon law, the law of the Catholic Church, was all that you needed to look at in order to consider what to do with an abusive priest, um, shocking as that is, they continue to use it, although it hasn't been successful. That's the good news. The good news is if you rape children or you engage in other sexual misconduct, you cannot say, well, wait a minute. I think what I did wasn't that bad because of the law of the church, but they still make it. And eventually, as we get deeper and deeper into the rewriting of the Constitution by this court, I wouldn't be surprised if a little bit more cognizance is given to that idea that the church makes its own policies and those cannot be jeopardized. Now here, on the issue of women, one of the churches that was thrown out earlier this week was a Saddleback Church. Uh, Rick Warren. No, Rick Warren's a church. And Rick Warren... No angel. Of, no angel. No, he's no angel. I mean, he... Uh, in fact, he, I, I wouldn't say he's demonic, but it, I mean, he, sh he certainly isn't a forward-thinking guy, notwithstanding he that he wears... I remember he spoke at Obama's inauguration in 2009. He spoke at Obama's inauguration. He was the guy who held the famous religious debate between Obama and, uh, and John McCain. And the questions he asked were just loaded with all kinds of code words for Christian listeners. And I don't think Obama really fully understood what he was getting into. How did McCain I, do? Because he made his bones going after the religious right back in 2000 when he ran against yeah, George but, W. Bush. Yeah, but the, the difference was that was another year. He wasn't looking for the religious right votes. He figured that that any kind of a Obama versus McCain, people would hold their nose, perhaps, and vote for McCain because they weren't going to vote for Obama, who was obviously a liberal. And, and I, think he, I think he miscalculated it, but what he gained from that was this, what Rick Warren gained from that was a sense that he was some kind of moderate voice, that you could trust him to be a moderate person. And he generally isn't. I mean, if you read his books or you watch his appearances, he used to be on Larry King all the time. I mean, he just is fundamentally a very conservative person. Against gay marriage. I mean, the controversy. Against gay marriage. That's, uh, the people felt that yeah. Obama was throwing the LGBTQ 
community under the bus by inviting him to speak at the inauguration because of his... Yeah, exactly. And and in a sense, he was. And, and Obama set up uh, a kind of coterie of other religious conservatives who were the bulk of the religious advisory council he created in order to... Uh, he said to correct the deficiencies of the George Bush faith-based initiative, which was an idea that you could throw money at religious organizations, attach very few, if any, strings to the money, and then give them lots of cash, and they could do what they wanted with it as long as it was helping other people. It was a big – it was a disaster. The Obama administration – Talk to a lot of us. I mean, I spent days and days before the inauguration writing up with colleagues, rabbis, other progressive ministers, all kinds of rules that ought to be followed. Simple things like if you get money from the government, you should put it in another checking account. You shouldn't commingle that money from the parishioners with the grants from the federal government. And they rejected that overwhelmingly under the theory that it's too difficult. If it's too difficult to create two bank accounts, then why should we think that you're going to know right. anything about how to feed the hungry or shelter the homeless if you can't even keep two checkbooks going simultaneously? And how about this? Um, I remember one debate over the question of religious symbols. And uh, people said, well, I mean, we, we thought, the I wasn't on this panel, there were very few progressive people on it. But um, I said, look, if it's practicable to cover up a crucifix or a Jesus saves banner, if it's practicable, then cover it up. First, they said, well, that, that word, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's in something like 20 statutes now. If it's practicable, you, you have to do something. And then they said, and furthermore, I mean, how important is it? We're talking about Christians who apparently forgot that there was this revelation of this guy, Saul, he becomes Paul because he has this vision on the way on a trip from one city to another. These symbols matter to people, or at least that is what Christian history tells us. And but all of a sudden now it just it didn't make any difference. It oh oh, what difference does it make? You so you see a cross. Well, a lot of people thought it was pretty important all right. back in the day. Let's turn to Pat Robertson, who passed away last week. Was there anything good about Pat Robertson? Yes, I think the greatest sin of Pat Robertson is that he had skills that he could have used for good things that he turned to being used for bad things. And I have two very specific examples. Um, he was... I once heard him preach a sermon because I would go to all of his, these meetings he had around the country about poverty in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. If Think about the most liberal Christian minister you've ever heard of. And that speech about poverty and children living on garbage heaps, that was a, a powerful, almost tear-jerking 
statement of, of what was wrong with international poverty. So he was capable of doing that. And the other thing is there was a debate held uh, mainly on the internet. Millions of people watched it, a debate between a guy named Ken Ham, who was a young earth creationist, a person who believes the earth is 6,000 years old and that evolution is a lie, uh, and Bill Nye, the science guy. And Bill did a, a fabulous job. The next day on Pat Robertson's 700 Club, without endorsing evolution, but he, Pat says, you know, I watched the debate last night. I think it is ridiculous to, for a Christian to make the claim that the earth is only 6,000 years old. It makes us look silly. So he did have, unlike Jerry Falwell, he had some sense of the value of science and was willing to say it. That was a very controversial response to the Ken Ham uh, debate. What very was, controversial. What were your confrontations with him like? Well, there were a couple of them. I mean, I am the only person that ever worked simultaneously and got a paycheck from both the ACLU and Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson set up a secular radio network called the News Talk Radio Network. And he was looking for really conservative people. He found them and then he wanted to have one show that would have a progressive voice and a conservative voice and that that he thought would be easier to sell to radio stations. And uh, so he, he found Pat Corton, who's a very nice fellow, died a few years ago, and, uh, and me. And he, um, at a dinner some years after that whole enterprise fell apart, uh, Pat Corton and I were, on, were hired by another group, a, a secular group. We were having lunch with one of the one of the biggest advertisers, and the advertiser says in the middle of dinner, why did Pat Robertson ever hire Barry? And Pat Corton said, I think it's because Barry's the only liberal who actually believes in God. And this guy got a big charge out of that. But it, it, it may have been true. Pat Robertson didn't think deeply about things. And that example of his secular network was one of the many financial failures that he lost millions of dollars on that. I don't think anyone ever knows the full story of what happened, but um, the whole thing collapsed. There were a lot of rumors about uh, money that was being stolen by some of the officials of the uh, company, but nothing Ever came to light that could be proven. Did Pat Robertson is, believe in God? Oh, I think he did. I think he did. I think he did because, remember, his... When... Robert, not a single reporter called me for comment. When Jerry Falwell died, I had a laundry list of people who wanted my thoughts about it. And I feel... Um, I just assume not comment on people's death, but I do think that Pat Robertson believed what he said, that he tried to do occasionally do the right, the correct thing, but it always virtually always turned out to be the right wing thing. Mm -hmm. He, he, 
early on in 1993, I think was the first time I had any encounter with him. He was trying to join with the Archdiocese of New York City to elect school board members in the city of New York who would oppose something called the Children of the Rainbow, which is a very, very nice... Uh, we should all get along, races should get along. There was some reference to gay people, we should get along with them too. Robertson's view was, if I can join with the archdiocese, maybe we can win. If we can win in New York, then we can win anywhere. If we can go to the heart of the beast and win there, we're golden. We can't be stopped. Uh, he was stopped. There were a few school board members that they endorsed that were actually elected. But as far as getting rid of the curriculum across the, the city of New York, it, it was a flop. It was and, a flop. and was he a religious scholar? I don't know that he was a religious scholar. He, you know, he went to law school at Yale, which is, you know, one major strike against him. But he... Um, Son I don't of think a senator. He, I mean, he yeah. got in because of the father, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And he, but he got in, and I don't know what his grades were. I don't know that it matters, law school, what your grades are. But he was. Um, I don't think he ever considered himself a Bible scholar. He was a reverend, but he gave up that ministerial standing when he ran for president in 1988, which was a big shock. I mean, I, everybody was like, why did he do this? He just thought, as Baptists often did, they wanted people elected preachers in their church. They didn't want them to go and become elected political leaders in their state. And that was an old, and, and many, many people, including very conservative Baptists that I knew, when Mike Huckabee was running, you know, he's also a minister, uh, they thought that would make him unelectable. And I'd say, why? And they say, well, you know, pastors ought to preach. They shouldn't make political judgments. Mike Huckabee, of course, never went very far, and uh, he would have faced a lot of internal Angst from very conservative Christians. Jimmy Carter, who is in our prayers, it started with him, didn't it? This whole born again, uh, this idea that religion belonged in politics, right? Didn't wasn't he the first candidate? No, I don't. I don't think he, it started with him. I think he was the first person to convince people that the fact that he was a born again Christian had was not a reason to vote against him because there were a lot of Democrats at the beginning of that campaign that thought, my God, we got to run. This guy actually quotes the Bible. But didn't he use his born again Christianity, his sister Ruth Carter Stapleton, I believe? Is yeah. It? Yeah. Didn't he run as a born again Christian? Like that was going to be no, his calling I don't, card? I, I don't think so. I think he ran on the idea that I'm not going to hide my Christian faith. My Christian faith takes me into some very progressive places, but don't expect that I'm going to tell you chapter and verse from the Bible about why I want to pass another Civil Rights Act or why I want to 
uh, make sure that the immigration crisis is is in part solved. I don't think he did that. I, people viewed him as doing that. And you may remember when Bob Shear of the LA Times did an mm-hmm. interview with Jimmy Carter that appeared in Playboy magazine, and Carter said, you know, I, I've committed adultery in my heart many times. That was a huge statement. I mean, I know Bob and I, he, he, he couldn't believe how controversial that statement was. But again, it was, it was using a Bible belief to say, I've got faults and I can tell you exactly where to find them in the Bible. But he didn't say, and by the way, um, I'm going to uh, apply that same test to everyone else. He, he, no, I can't remember any time when he actually crossed that line. Right. I don't know if it was during that interview, but sometime in the 1976 presidential election, Jimmy Carter said it's perfectly acceptable for a community to maintain its ethnic purity do you remember that no i don't i don't yeah. remember that what do you th- what was he talking about busing basically that he was he never really came out for busing that was right. a big issue and had we bust had we solved busing this country would be a much better place oh it certainly would i mean it was um i I think the strongest evidence of that for me, you know, I I went to theology school in Boston. I taught school for three years at Cardinal Cushing Central High School, which was an all-girls high school. And it had specifically been created and it was going to be maintained by the Archdiocese of Boston to its credit as a place where they would give not only would they hire teachers who weren't Catholics like me, but they would also give scholarships to African-American and Hispanic students. And there were large numbers of African-American and Hispanic students at that school. And they, they took another high school and did the same thing. And they said, we're not going to allow this these institutions have become havens of white flight. They were very clear about that purpose. And it made a big difference because I don't know that at the end of the day, everybody in those classes you know, loved each other, was not a perfect kumbaya moment. But I can tell you, it's a huge step forward for the residents of South Boston when you can even say, yeah, I, I actually have a black friend. I was in Boston a number of times right after I finished teaching at that school and a woman came up to me in a, a luncheonette and reintroduced herself. I recognized her as a student. And they had just started to talk about integrating the beaches of South Boston. And this woman, probably 1920 at the time, just, she just said, I just, I'm so sickened by what people in our community are doing in these beach controversies that we're all the same. I mean, that, you know, it sounds naive, but it was true. And it was a huge step forward. And Joanne and I went back to South Boston to those beaches about a year ago. And it's unthinkable what has changed now. African-Americans are there, African-Americans and white 
partners are there. Gay people are there holding hands, walking down the beaches of South Boston. That would never have happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Times do change. And I think that the integration of private schools, um, those private Catholic schools, was a step in the right direction. The bad news is that after after all the, the good things and the encounters with these, I met a woman on the street in, in uh, Washington, and she said, Mr. Lynn, oh, hi. I said, what are, you, what are you doing in Washington? She said, I'm an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Mm -hmm. I thought, and she said, and if it wasn't for you and Paul, another teacher, I'd have never thought I could do this. Those things make a difference. But when they integrated the public schools in South Boston, and there's a, a movie about it just came out two years ago. It's on one of the streaming services about the police response the police hated to have to enforce and when i talked to some of the teachers at the at the cardinal cushing high school they said they lost every one of their black and hispanic students because the cops either couldn't or wouldn't protect them on the one block walk the one block from the subway stop in southie to the school itself. Liberal it Boston. Liberal Boston ain't so liberal when it comes to race. Which and is it's, George Wallace in the Democratic primary in 76 did pretty well. I don't think he won, oh, yeah. the, but he did. I remember being shocked. Well, how is it possible that George Wallace is doing so well in Massachusetts? Yeah, he... Um, well, there's a there's and there probably still is uh, certain pieces of Massachusetts where um, being black should be a crime. Yeah. John Frankenheimer, remember the great uh, director. Director. John did a a. I knew a his brother. I knew his brother John Weisenheimer. He was a <laughs> really. He was a comedian. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So he did a two part special. On the life of Wallace, a fictionalized, and I remember interviewing him. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I, Frankenheimer said, I think on air, he said, you know, I believe George Wallace was not a segregationist at the time he died. Yes. Well, well, well that was that's a fact. I mean, he yeah. well, Wallace he, had a come a literal come to Jesus moment yeah. and apologized for that. He also had African-Americans in Alabama who voted for him because he believed in separate but equal. And a lot of black people, I remember saying, look, he didn't believe in integration, but but our schools were funded. Hmm. Now we yeah. have uh, we don't have separate but equal and we have our schools are are an apartheid state. I mean, it's. For another conversation. Indeed. But I, I do think, I mean, we, we come a long way, but we, we still go back to these horrific things. I'm not which so continue sure. continue to this day. I, 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 I think <clears throat> we've come a long way, but on race, I think 
where I think if you I think there are uh, there's way more opportunity for African-Americans in America than there's ever been. I think we're more accepting of interracial marriage. But I think I don't know if you add up. I know the schools are more segregated now than uh, at any time since uh, Little Rock. They're more segregated now. Yeah, but that's because a lot of white private schools are now subsidized with grants and vouchers, and that will only continue. Um, I think it's... If you if you take on on a show this afternoon, and uh, I said if you one of the problems with progressives is that we tend not to take the long view that conservatives do, and I think the best example of that is the Supreme Court. I mean, five years ago, there were. Very progressive people who, when you'd say, I think we should add four people to the court, they'd go, absolutely not. Because then when the Republicans get in again, they'll just add another four. That's not the point. The point is you got a crisis now. You have a crisis where the courts are so befouled at every level. And we may see that just in the in the trial of uh, Donald Trump. I mean, here's a woman who is clearly not ready for prime time. Uh, She's got the case and she made preliminary rulings that were so silly that they were overturned by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a very, very conservative appeals court right now. And even they said she 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 got it wrong. She is not going. Somebody wrote me a note today said, "Oh, she's liable to acquit him." Well, that's probably not going to be necessary because once she makes a bunch of rulings about what evidence is in and what evidence is out, she will have done a lot of damage. And if the Justice Department knows what it's doing, it will appeal all those rulings and that will eat in more and more and more time until we get a resolution of this. And, you know, I've said here many times, I think the best hope for the Democratic Party in the next election cycle is to run somebody against Donald Trump again. I watched, I don't know if you saw the CNN special one-on-one Anderson Cooper and Chris Christie. I saw parts of it, yeah. it was. Amazing. I thought Chris Christie, pretty good. Pretty good, yeah. exactly. I, I could see him. I'm thinking if I was a Republican and I watched that, I'd look at my candidates, uh, DeSantis, and then go down the list, Asa Hutchinson. We better go with Chris Christie. Now, people like you and I know that Chris Christie is a horrible human being. Yes. But, But for what he did that night, for people desperately looking for some alternative to Donald Trump, I think he did one I do, too. I, I, <laughs> I do, too. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is author of Paid to Piss People Off, published by Blue Cedar Press. Go to BarryWLynn.com. Buy the book, I Command You. It's got the Feldman 
guarantee. And you can follow the Reverend on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. We'll, we'll talk to you uh, next week, I hope. I believe we will. Very and um, I will. Uh, go ahead. Stay, what are you going to stay out of trouble, <laughs> Reverend? Only good trouble. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump.